You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Your family just got a little bigger. An ancient hominid fossil has been found in a South African cave. What we know so far, he or she seems to be upright with ape-like shoulders for climbing, long legs for running, and a tiny brain. Sounds familiar. My word, dear. Looks like Uncle Sardius got his picture in the paper. Goodness, Charles, that's not Sardius. His shoulders are much hairier. Yes, the upright stance, the long legs, the bantam-sized brain. These features sound familiar because to paleoanthropologists, they were familiar. But the bones of the newly unearthed Homo naledi are also perplexing. They're from the genus Homo, closely related to modern humans. That was obvious to paleoanthropologists right away. But they're also ape-like. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology. And in this episode, unearthing the significance of a major archaeologic find in South Africa. Those who discovered Homo naledi claim that it is a new species of hominid, but some anthropologists say it's a variation of a known species. Find out why it matters, what we know and what we don't know about human evolution, and just what the bones were doing in the nearly inaccessible depths of a cave. We're going all to species over this new anthropological find. Imagine scanning Facebook when you suddenly see, tucked into your feed of adorable animal antics, a career-changing opportunity. This was part of an actual Facebook post in 2013. Let's see. Okay, I'll go ahead and like the cat knitting video. And wait, what's in my physical anthropology feed? Hey, it's a job offer in South Africa. We need perhaps three or four individuals with excellent archaeological and excavation skills. Cool. Let's see what else. The person must be skinny and preferably small. Well, that's perfect. They must not be claustrophobic. Not a problem. They must be fit. That's me. They should have some caving experience. Climbing experience would be a bonus. (laughs) This is starting to sound awesome. They must have a good attitude and be a team player. Nope, won't work. I'm not a team player. But this woman is. My name is Marina Elliott, and I'm a paleoanthropologist in South Africa. 
She also has caving experience, is not claustrophobic, and is slim. A Ph.D. student at Simon Fraser University at the time, Marina responded to the Facebook post by renowned paleoanthropologist Lee Berger. And of the 60 applicants that responded, she made the final cut of six. All were women. Their assignment? Crawl, climb, and rappel through a series of chambers in a South African cave with one passage deep, deep in the cave that was less than a foot wide. It was in the most remote reaches of the cave that recreational spelunkers had, just weeks earlier, made a startling discovery. Thousands of fossilized bones lay scattered on the floor. The cavers contacted Dr. Berger. He prevailed upon fellow archaeologists to bring the bones to the surface. Now, we should warn you, what follows is not for those that suffer from audio claustrophobia, that is, the fear of listening to other people describe being in small and confined spaces. It's certainly true that a body size requirement is unusual in a job application, but the problem with the cave is that there are a number of uh, very tight squeezes in it. One of them actually is 18 centimeters wide, so you actually have to slip down a a 12-meter vertical crack that has this 18-centimeter pinch point in it, and that's about seven inches, I guess. That's a pretty confining space, so you had to be both fit enough to deal with the vertical climb and the physical aspect of the caving, but then this 18-centimeter or or seven-inch pinch point was the real rub, literally. (laughs) Literally, yes. Well, well, let me make sure I understand. When you say it's 18 centimeters, seven inches, I mean, that's the width of a slot, or is it a a circular opening only seven inches in diameter? Because I don't think you could even get your head through that. Yeah, exactly, and that's what most people don't quite get is it's actually a 18 centimeter pinch point in a slot so you have rock wall in front of you and you have a rock wall behind you and you have to be able to get past this pinch point but it's not a diameter hole okay and and so how do you actually do this i mean do you put one leg you know through and then just sort of pull the rest of your butt i mean how do how do you actually get through something that small yeah, it's uh, carefully, I guess, is the short answer to that. But yeah, in this slot, because of how narrow it is, you you really can't see where you're putting your feet and your hands are out to the side. And so your head is actually turned to one side because you don't have enough room for your head and your helmet to be straight on. So you your head is to one side, your feet are below you, but you can't see where you're putting them. Your hands are to the sides, but again, you can't really see the handholds because, of course, you're in pitch dark and the only illumination is your headlamp. So you sort of feel your way down through this crack. Yeah, it's definitely a little bit touch and go every now and then. And the rock that we're dealing with is very sharp and there's lots of protrusions in it. So, yeah, it's a bit of a struggle. You have to learn how to bend your body in some funny ways. So we we often came up with a lot of scrapes and bruises. I think for people who haven't done this sort of thing, they're, they're probably wondering why you didn't just go in there with a hammer and a chisel and you know just make it all bigger. Yeah, that's an excellent question. We've had that one a lot. Part of that is that we didn't want to just disrupt Mother Nature because we could. We had the right tools to get ourselves in. In fact, we were the tools. So there was really no need to ruin that beautiful cave. It took a long time for that cave to form, and it is a spectacularly beautiful system. So we didn't feel it was really within our right to just go in and smash our way in. Once you got through these uh, daunting orifices into the cave, could you could you see the bones right away? Yes. Once you're through the pinch point, you drop down into a, an open chamber, and then there's another narrow hallway. And then 
the chamber opens up again to where the actual fossil material was found. And I was the first scientist to go into that space. And basically, when I first shone my headlamp into the cave, you could see sort of flashes of bone pretty much all over the surface of the cave of this one chamber. You know, that's reminiscent of uh, Howard Carter in 1922 when he was in Egypt and making his way into King Tut's tomb, the Valley of the Kings, you know, he peered through a small opening and people asked him, uh, you know, his sponsor asked him, what do you see? And he said, wonderful things. Yeah, that's that's exactly how I felt, actually. I had read a lot about Carter when I was young, and I love that sort of age of exploration and adventure. So that was really how it felt for me going into that space for the first time. It was really pretty overwhelming. I take it claustrophobia is not uh, something you suffer from. Not at all, no. No claustrophobia and no fear of heights. So once you could get into the cave, obviously you could do something with these bones, examine them, photograph them, whatever it is that a paleontologist would do with them. But what about mm-hmm. all the colleagues who couldn't fit through those openings? They're just waiting for you to, you know, come back and report or do you hand stuff out or, you know, how, how do you actually do that if there's such limited access? Actually, what Lee Berger did was to bring together a huge team of people, six excavators. So I was one of six women who actually did the excavation and brought the material to the surface. We had a team of cavers and then a huge support network of people helping us behind. So we spent a month excavating the material underground and bringing the pieces up very carefully, very slowly to the surface where they were examined and then the real research began. So it was a big undertaking to get the material out, but it was an awesome experience. Well, Marina Elliott, thank you so very much for speaking with us. You're very welcome. Thank you. Marina Elliott is a paleoanthropologist at the University of Witwatersrand in South Africa. You know, Marina told me it took five or six minutes to get through that slot on a good day. That sounds pretty tedious, but not as bad as when in the movies you see them crawling underneath an overhang. And I keep thinking, what if the earth falls down on you? I think either way, whether you're crawling down or doing a vertical walk as she was, it just gives me claustrophobia thinking about it. As she was crawling through that gap, that 18-centimeter, 7-inch gap, she was doing something called the Superman crawl. Do you know why that is? Yeah, 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 because she has one hand to the side and the other up like flying Superman. Absolutely, because there wasn't enough room for her to have both her hands down at her side. Yeah, now I don't even think a Nobel Prize in paleoanthropology would get me to go through that slot. The big cache of fossils was found in the Rising Star Cave, and the cave is in a region of South Africa known as the Cradle of Humankind, where archaeologists have unearthed many fossils of early human ancestors. Well, we'll talk later in the show more about what was discovered in Rising Star Cave, but first... Biological anthropologist Carol Ward reminds us that it wasn't all that long ago that the idea of looking in Africa for human origins was disputed. In fact, our understanding of where we came from, that we came from Africa, is really only about 90 years old. Before that, most of the Europeans were doing the thinking. They thought, of course, maybe we came from Europe or someplace else. But it was only about 90 years ago that we've known that we came from Africa. Now, in the area around the cave where Homo naledi bones were found, uh, is that a particular hot spot for archaeologists? I mean, uh, or is the, the sort of the hunting ground for our ancestors far broader than that? Well, the hunting ground for our ancestors really extends from South Africa all the way up through East Africa and even into Central Africa. In South Africa, there are a whole series of limestone caves, and caves are a wonderful place to preserve bones, so they're a wonderful place to find our ancestors. 
The problem with caves is it's very hard to know how old they are. When were the animals that fell into the cave deposited there? How long have they been underground? It's very hard to know. Well, why is that? Why is it so hard to know? In East Africa, where the earliest evidence of human ancestors comes from, is an area called the Rift Valley, where the two parts of Africa are actually splitting apart, and it's very volcanically active. And volcanoes are amazing things. When they erupt, they trap radioactive particles that harden and begin to decay. And we can use that to tell exactly how long ago that volcano erupted. So a volcano erupts, then crud and dirt builds up on the land and in the rivers, and then another volcano erupts, and we can tell exactly by this layer cake how old the fossils are. Okay, but if they're in a cave, you just don't have that evidence. Is that the problem? Exactly. There was not this volcanic activity in South Africa. And when things fall in a cave, they don't do it neatly layer by layer by layer. They all fall in on top of each other and get jumbled up. There seem to be two main genera here, the Australopithecus and Homo, you know, Australopithecus africanus, Australopithecus sedia, and then further along the bones become those of Homo, Homo habilis, Homo erectus, and so forth. What's the difference between these, these two genera? Well, traditionally, we thought that Australopithecus are the earlier set of species. They're smaller in body size. They have big, strong, heavy jaws and teeth for chewing all different kinds of foods. Their brains were smaller. And then with Homo, what we have always thought is that Homo gets the larger brain, the smaller face and jaws, and begins to make and use tools. And that has always been our idea of the difference between these two genera. Recently, however, a lot more hominid species have been discovered. And what we're realizing is there's a fine line between these two genera and the differences early in time are not as great as we thought. So to say, roughly speaking, that Australopithecus is kind of ape-like and Homo is more human-like, uh, that, that's just patting ourselves on the back. <laughs> it is patting ourselves on the back a little bit. Certainly, we are a member of the genus Homo, so Homo, of course, is like us because it is us. And as we get later in time, we start to see the features that really distinguish us appear slowly and successively over the ages. Early in time, at the beginning part of our lineage, we weren't very different from the things that we branched off from. So the earlier we go in time, the more similar Homo becomes to Australopithecus. So there's not a real jump. It's a gradual evolution. What are the big questions that paleoanthropologists have about human evolution? Is it this transition from Australopithecus to Homo that they're puzzling over? What, what, what is the fundamental one-sentence question that you're trying to answer? Oh, boy. It depends when you look. We have a lot of questions. One thing is, how did our whole lineage begin? What set us apart initially from our ape forebears? And how did that then set the course for what eventually turned into us? That's actually what my research is. Another question is, how did our genus differ from Australopithecus? How did our genus begin? Another big question is, how many different kinds of human ancestral species or human relatives were there in the past? How many species of Australopithecus? How many species of early Homo? Were they different? Did they compete with one another? How were they similar? We don't really know. And what we're seeing now is there is a lot more diversity in our branch of our family tree than we ever suspected in the past. When I was a kid, which was about, uh, I think, contemporary with uh, Australopithecus, actually, uh, you know, people would use the term missing link as if there was some important evidence in this field that, 
simply couldn't be found or hadn't been found in, in, uh, in, in any case. Does anybody use the term missing link anymore other than maybe in connection with the Internet? <laughs> the term missing link is something you hear sort of bandied about in popular culture often. That's the idea that there's a long series of links in a chain, and you find one and then the other and then the other, and you can string them together to learn about our history. But really, there are lots of different hominids. Biology is not pretty. There's a lot more complexity out there. So to think of a single chain is really a misleading metaphor. One anthropologist has said, Carol, that all we know about the genus Homo could fit into a shoebox and you'd still have room for a pair of shoes. What did they mean by that? That was my friend Bill Kimball, I think, who said that. Well, the very, very earliest fossils we have that we can call Homo are few and far between. Once we get later in time, we've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of specimens. But early in time, back around 2 million or older than 2 million years, they're very few. Carol Ward, thank you so very much for speaking with us today. You are welcome. It's been a delight. Thank you so much for having me. Carol Ward is a biological anthropologist at the University of Missouri. We know where the bones were found and how they may have gotten there. Next, what they might mean. Why paleoanthropologists say they've seen nothing quite like the fossils of Homo naledi. We are going all to species on Big Picture Science. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The place, the Rising Star Cave, 30 miles northwest of Johannesburg. The activity, paleoanthropologist Marina Elliott and her colleagues have laboriously hauled thousands of ancient fossilized bones from deep underground. It was the first light these bones had seen in perhaps as many as two million years. Paleoanthropologists in nearby tents, waiting for the cavers to emerge, immediately began studying the evidence. That was in November 2013. The analysis of the fossils is ongoing and will continue for years. But researchers from the Rising Star Expedition say that the anatomy of the creature necessitates a new species name, Homo naledi. The hominid has ancient features, an ape-like body, the ability to climb trees, a small brain, but also modern hands and feet, and the anatomy to be a long-distance walker. It's a unique combination, they say. As we heard from Dr. Ward, a central question in human evolution is how the genus Australopithecus became Homo. Homo naledi is possibly related to the earliest members of our genus. Does it predate the earliest Homo species we know? And that would be Homo habilis from about 1.5 to 2.8 million years ago. Well, before Homo habilis, the trail goes dark. So here's the exciting possibility. Perhaps Homo naledi is the earliest example of Homo. Anthropologist John Hawkes at the University of Wisconsin-Madison is one of the leaders of the Rising Star Expedition, and he is studying the fossils. John, as an anthropologist, if you go into a cave and you find a lot of bones in there, as was the case in this South African cave, 
how quickly do you know what kind of bones you're looking at and even some idea of how old they are? I mean, if I came across a pile of bones, I wouldn't assume it was a primitive species of human. Well, and in the Rising Star Cave, it's a really good example of this because our team, the cavers, went down into this chamber. They encountered bones on the surface. They could be anything. They could be anything from a modern crime that is happening there to very recent bones. And these bones were not embedded in a hard rock like lots of bones are that we work with in South Africa. They were laying loose on the surface from photographs because the more experienced members of our team couldn't go into this chamber. It's too narrow a passage to get in. So we had to work with photographs and video from inside. We could tell that this was not a modern human, that we were looking at something that was probably very ancient, certainly very primitive in the way that it looked. But when you ask, how long does it take us to know what these things are? You know, literally, we weren't sure what they were until we had excavated more than 1,500 specimens and worked on them for a long time. Okay, but uh, you said you can tell that they're old. When, when you say old, I mean Homo sapiens, to the best of my limited knowledge, is a species with a roughly 200,000-year history. You say these are ancient. What, what does ancient mean in this context? Well, ancient in, in this context means extinct. It means that it's a form of hominin that no longer exists. It wasn't a modern human. The indications we had from photographs were that we had teeth, we had a jawbone we could see in the photos. This looked comparable to things that lived a couple of million years ago. Now, we don't know the age of these fossils still. We don't know whether they were deposited there two million years ago, three million years ago, or whether they were deposited there much more recently. I mean, after all, it could be a form of hominin that's very primitive that actually survived for a long time alongside of maybe other forms that were evolving. So we don't know how old they are, but we do, after analyzing them, have a pretty good idea of where they fit in the family tree. That's why we made a new species for them, and we've got a pretty good feeling for what their relationship to us is. Well, why can't you just carbon date them? Isn't that what's usually done for things that might be, I don't know, less than a few million years old? Well, radiocarbon dating depends on the decay of carbon-14, and that has a half-life of around 5,000 years, which means that after about 40,000 years, there's so little of it left that we can't actually get any accurate dates. We do, in South African cave contexts, use a method called uranium series dating. We use the fact that uranium is present in the groundwater, and when water drips through caves and leaves those flow stones in the caves, we can estimate from the decay of that uranium how old the flowstone is. But in our cave, we've actually dug only a very small amount. Our total excavation area right now in the Rising Star Cave is less than a square meter, which means that we have a lot left to understand about the way that these bones were laid down, the stratigraphy. Often uh, paleoanthropological uh, discoveries involve, you know, tiny fragments of bones. I mean, to me, they don't, you know, they're not even obviously bones. Uh, Often they're teeth. I guess teeth are hard. But this discovery includes enough parts for you to put together full skeletons. Am I correct in that? Yeah, we have at least 15 individuals represented in the chamber. Now, we're digging through what appears to be a total deposit, like a bed of hominin bones. And so we do have articulated arms with articulated hands. We have complete feet in there, but we don't have a single skeleton. It's going to take us a while to work out exactly which parts go with what. 
We have every bone of the body represented with a couple of exceptions. Most of them are represented multiple times. And we have some incredibly complete bones. We have 150 hand and wrist bones. We have 190 teeth. So we have what is at the moment the most complete representation of the anatomy of any extinct form of hominin. John, could you uh, give me some idea of what Homo naledi looked like before he became bones? I mean, if I saw one of these guys on the street, uh, in what ways would he be physically different from the other people I'm seeing on the street that are Homo sapiens? Would it be obvious? If you look at them from a distance and without a scale, they're going to look pretty human. You know, they walk like us. They could run like us, jump like us. Their feet and legs very human-like. But they're small for humans. Uh, they stand about four foot six to five feet tall. So they're, you know, sort of small in height. I have a pair of twins at home who are about this size, you know. So you look at them from a distance, you'd think they were kids. But these are grown-ups. The adults are of that size. The males and females not very different in size as far as we can tell. They would be skinny for that height. Their bones are very narrow, very slender, not super robust. And as you look closer, the things that stick out to you are their heads are way too small. They have small brain sizes, a third the size of our brains. And their shoulders are canted a bit upwards, and their arms are pretty powerful for their size. So they're a bit more maybe like a wrestler, if a wrestler was really well made for climbing trees. <laughs> the discovery of the bones required some pretty uh, hair-raising caving, some real spelunking through crevices and crawl spaces that give me claustrophobia just to see the videos. Do you have any idea, John, how these bodies got into this cave? I mean, was this a spelunking expedition that went wrong a few million years ago? And, and why are there are so many individuals down in there? Well, caves do change over time. You know, the geology evolves. Um, there can be fills within the cave that can change the way that you access different parts of it. And so we did not assume at the beginning that this cave must have been very difficult to get into in the past. What we did then was a series of investigations to try to figure out what this cave was like at the time that these bodies were deposited there. We really feel strongly, I mean, we can show that the bodies reached this chamber whole because the parts that we have articulated, like hands and feet, these are the first things to come apart when bodies are exposed in the landscape. So we know that the bodies were whole when they went in. From there, we went through likely scenarios that we know are operating at other sites. For example, sometimes in these caves, carnivores will drag in bodies, or carnivores are working above the cave and, and body parts drop in. But on all of our bones fragments, every one of them, there's not a single mark that comes from a tooth mark from a carnivore or cut mark from any other kind of hominin. It's very clear that these bones were not altered by anything before they entered the chamber or afterwards. So we could rule out carnivores. Sometimes water levels change and maybe flooding could carry things in, but the only particles in our deposit that are large are the hominin bones themselves. There's nothing that indicates that anything was carried by water. Also, there's no other animals with the hominins. There's no macrofauna, as we say, which means that probably this chamber was always very difficult to access because other kinds of animals, even sort of twilight living animals, were not getting into here. So it left us with either hominins were entering this chamber and dying there multiple times because our deposit appears to have formed over some period of time, or hominins were depositing bodies at the entrance of this, probably deliberately dropping them in. So what you're saying is it may be a burial site, that they're living compatriots. They're, 
<laughs> their friends, their relatives, whatever, may have thrown their bodies in there? That's what we think is, at the moment, the most logical hypothesis. We just can't get the bodies in there easily any other way. And we have bodies of newborns, of children of all ages, of, of adults, of old adults. This isn't a group of explorers. You know, This is really representing some ancient population in some sense. So yeah, that's where we are. Well, if it's a burial site, well, burying dead, I mean, that's a sign of culture. What what are typically our earliest signs of culture in, in our own lineage? I mean, how far back do we know that goes? Well, you have to remember that chimpanzees, bonobos, gorillas are cultural creatures. They maintain traditions. Those traditions are learned from other individuals. They're not innate. They're not instinctual. And they're also, because they're advanced social mammals, highly emotional creatures. You know, emotion is a system of regulation of social relationships. They feel grief when other individuals in their group die. They feel the loss. They behave differently when that happens. Sometimes they're carrying around children or babies that die for days at a time. So it's clear that all social mammals have this capability, at least, of an emotional feeling. And it's a highly significant event when group members die. What we're looking at for Homo naledi potentially, if indeed this is a deliberate deposition, is adding to that what I think is shared among most social mammals, adding a component of cultural knowledge that when individuals die, we don't just leave them here. We do something special with them. Of course, in humans today, we tie that to highly symbolic activity, religion. I don't think that we can assume anything like that for an early hominin, but it seems like it's just an incremental addition to what we see already happening in other kinds of primates. Well, then the big question is, how does Homo naledi fit into the family tree? Uh, you know, is it a direct ancestor of us, or is it, you know, a direction that the, the, the hominins went, and then eventually that direction died out? I mean, where, where do they fit? Looking at their anatomy, their skulls are built quite a lot like the skulls of very early examples of Homo erectus. Their brains are a good bit smaller than Homo erectus brains. Their teeth are small and sort of human-like, even relative to erectus, but their bodies have some more primitive elements than erectus does. Their hips are more flared, more primitive looking. Their shoulders are much more primitive looking than erectus. They have very curved fingers, even though their hands look like otherwise, they're very human-like. So we look at that and we say, maybe this branches from us somewhere around those earliest examples of Homo, Homo erectus at its very earliest existence, Homo habilis, Homo rudolfensis. Given that, that looks like their relationship to us was sometime around two to two and a half million years ago or so. We don't know the age of these fossils. They might have persisted a long time after that in South Africa. They could even have lived alongside modern humans for all we know. But the branch point on the family tree is around the earliest examples of our genus. What makes us think that this is a new species of hominid? I mean, you know, you look at bones obviously a lot more <laughs> differently than I do. I look at bones, I see bones. You, you you see the connections right away. But is there something obvious in the appearance of these remains that tells you, you know, this is this is not a an animal uh, completely unrelated to us. This is one of our ancestors. How how do you determine that? 
Well, you know, it's an interesting question because a lot of people have become cynical about new species. They're like, well, yeah, everybody wants to name a new species. And you find something, you obviously want to accentuate how different it is. We brought in more than 60 scientists to work on this. And let me tell you, we had some of the best lumpers, people who never would want to name something new, and some real splitters, people who wanted to name new things, you know, even for things that I don't think are really different. And in this case, across the skeleton, all of us were able to agree that we could not match this to any existing hominin. You know, the real interesting part about looking at a full body collection is that one part of the body might look a little like something, but other parts of the body look like other things. And with Homo naledi, there is this real mixture of features. We've had this problem already with a species called Australopithecus sediba, another South African species also discovered by Lieberger. And also a species where we have representation of most of the skeleton. Sediba's homo-like in its hips, it's homo-like in its face and its teeth in ways that no other Australopith is. But it has very primitive looking feet and a relatively primitive body size and body shape. Whereas with Homo naledi, we're looking at homo-like skulls and teeth, homo-like feet and legs and body size, but a very primitive hip and a very primitive shoulder. It's a different mosaic, as we put it. And that's really tough for us because what it's telling us is that early Homo and later Australopithecus are experimenting with different ways of becoming human-like. And these different lineages, each of them might have been converging on anatomy that later became really important to our genus. John Hawks, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. John Hawks is an anthropologist at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. What you doing, Mingus? Taking up a little dendrology, I see. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm looking up my relatives. Oh, I've used that site, Ancestry.com. Paleoancestry.com. That goes back a little further. It turns out I come from a long line of heavy-browed folk who walked upright. And look, our family crest was a pointed stick. Let me check my family crest. My family crest is a pile of mud and some termites. John Hawke says that he and many anthropologists consider Homo naledi a new species, but not everyone agrees. Anthropologist Tim White, who helped discover the fossils Lucy and Artie, next. We're trying to keep it all together, but we may be going all to species on Big Picture Science. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's see where we are when it comes to where we were. When we look at the fossils from our human evolutionary past, well, there just aren't that many. We only have a handful of skeletons older than a million years. Okay, working backward, we know that around 1.5 million years ago, Homo erectus, 
thick-browed and upright, lumbered around. Rewinding the movie a bit more, stocky Homo habilis was using stone tools two and a half million years ago. Going back earlier, we leave the genus Homo and meet our ape-like ancestors in the genus Australopithecus. Lucy is the most famous find of this genus. Her species, Australopithecus afarensis, 3.2 million years ago. But we can go back even farther to the hominid Artie. She was discovered in Ethiopia in 1992 by a team led by anthropologist Tim White at the University of California, Berkeley, who had become renowned for his work with Donald Johansson on the discovery of Lucy. Dr. White's team studied the Ethiopian Ardi fossils for 17 years before making a public announcement. What the public learned in 2009 is that Ardi was not only a new species, but also a new genus, Artipithecus ramidus and that she was 4.4 million years old, Lucy's older cousin by 1.2 million years. That makes Artie's position very close to our common ancestor with the chimpanzees. When Tim White announced her discovery, he said, this is the oldest hominid skeleton on Earth. Dr. White says that it's rare to discover a new hominid species, never mind that of a new genus. In his opinion, scientists often are too quick to declare that they found a new species and that what's in a name matters if we want to correctly understand the process of evolution. Is our ancestral tree bristling with many branches of extinct species, or are there fewer branches but each with gradual variations? Whether Homo naledi is indeed a new species will play out in peer-reviewed journals over the coming years. But when asked to give his opinion on the subject, based on the evidence so far, Dr. White was skeptical. It's my opinion that the species designation is premature. It's very unusual to find a new hominid species because we have so many previously found bones that have been assigned to various species. In fact, the species that is most similar to the ones found in South Africa in the Rising Star Cave is a species we've known about since the 1800s. It was initially found on Java, and it was called Homo erectus. Well, the team that is working on the bones would say that they have analyzed them and they do have something new. So the argument against it being a new species has to be more than just it's rare to find a new species. Have you had a chance to look at the bones or, or at least how they've been described? Well, what we do in science is we make our discoveries, we publish them, and then other researchers assess the publications And so that's what I've done relative to the rising star discoveries. And I can't find anything that would merit a species-level distinction. That's not to say that it's not a new species. It is to say that their presentation of the evidence has not established it as a new species. What features do you look at when you're trying to determine whether or not this is a new species or a variation of, say, Homo erectus, which it sounds like you're suggesting? Can you give us an example or one or two characteristics that you look at? We look at the skulls. Do they have cranial capacities the same as modern people, or are they roughly half the size? If they're roughly half the size, we're not going to assign them to Homo sapiens, our own species. We are going to say, these belong to something with roughly half the size of a human brain case. And what would that species be? That's the one that was recognized in the 1800s in Java. It's called Homo erectus. And then we would say, well, let's not just look at brain size. Let's take a look at the teeth. Let's take a look at the jaws. 
Let's take a look at a bump on the back of the head called the external occipital protuberance. This is an anatomical feature, and if you go around to your, even in your own family, feel the very back of the head right on the midline, and if there's a big bump of bone there, you have an external occipital protuberance. Hey, let's see if I have it feeling the back of my head, and I do feel something that is what you describe. What is that there for? Well, that's where the neck muscles come up and attach to the back of the head. Now, that doesn't mean that if you lack an external occipital protuberance, you don't belong to Homo sapiens. It just means it's a trait that's variable. And yet, it's one of the traits that these rising star people claim to differentiate their bones from Homo erectus. And here's the problem with their analysis. Homo erectus has an external occipital protuberance just like the ones that they found in the rising star cave. So this is a flaw in their published research. And that's why I am skeptical that this is a new species. Now, whether or not it's a new species or a variation of Homo erectus, as, as you suggested, is it still an important find to archaeology? And what light might it shed on our understanding of human evolution? Well, I'm not skeptical about the importance of the discovery. It's obviously hugely important. Why is that? Because most of our fossil record, even though we have thousands of fossils of Homo erectus, most of these fossils are isolated. Their jaws, their teeth, their partial skulls. We have never found more than a few of the hand bones. And you can look at the back of your own hand. There are a lot of bones in there. Start counting them. Each finger's got three. The thumb's got two. Those are just the ones that move. Then you've got five that are called metacarpals in the middle of the hand. Then you have carpals in between your wrist and your hand. That's a whole bunch of bones. And for this whole species, spread from Europe to Java to South Africa, we never had a hand until now. So whether this is a new species or Homo erectus, its age is going to be important. But the really important breakthrough of this discovery is having a whole hand and a whole foot that goes together. That tells you about biology. But having worked on body parts of many individuals all over the world for better part of 35 years, I know how long this kind of research takes. And in fact, you have some of those body parts here in your office. What are those skulls? Who, who did they once belong to? What species or what genus? The, the gentlemen whose busts are on my desk are from a cave in Cro-Magnon in France. That's anatomically modern people, the ones that did the cave art in Europe some 30 to 50,000 years ago. The other one's a Neanderthal. Usually they lived a little earlier. They were overlapping in time in Europe, but that's right at the top. And those were found in the 1800s. The other skull there on the tabletop is 4.4 million years ago. We found back in the 90s a skeleton of one individual. This is Artie. Must that's be Artie. Can, may I sure, hold absolutely. him or her? Sure. This is a stereolithograph of the head. Goodness. That's the cranial part. Hmm. We have the lower jaw that goes along with that. And you will notice that what we have here is the mid face. You'd call the upper part of your skull your cranium. Your lower jaw is a mandible, and together they constitute the skull. Okay, so this does not have the, the lower jaw. Well, but we this... do have that. That's right over here. Here's the lower jaw. The cranium and the lower jaw that is here before me, um, it's actually quite small. I would say this, this is not knowing anything about anatomy, knowing very little. It's either a small human child or it's an ape. 
This is an example of Artipithecus ramidus, otherwise nicknamed Artie. But what's important is not the name of a new genus or the name of a new species. These are basically very trivial things or labels we put on to describe what we're saying. And, and yet you gave them new labels. So I'm wondering what it was about these bones here that are in front of me that required a new species and a new genus. You've already noticed the very small cranial capacity, the very projecting face. In fact, it's so small you said, this kind of looks like a child. And it does look like a really, really tiny baby human child, <laughs> but it's not. So this is a fully adult creature with a brain size the size of a chimp. So your next question should be, why isn't this just a chimpanzee? Well, we can answer that too because we've done the comparisons, careful long-term comparisons with chimpanzees. And you never find one that has a canine tooth that looks like this in Artie. Because it's blunt. blunt. It's more blunt than, a, um, than a, an ape's tooth would be. That's right. I'd like you to say a little bit more about this idea of what's in a name. And what is the definition of species? Is there agreed upon definition? There are, at last count, hundreds of available definitions of what a species is. But we in the historical sciences, especially in organismal biology, talk about species lineages. Groups of organisms that share genetic material. Now, there are exceptions because there is leakage. There has even been in our own lineage, apparently, some leakage between Neanderthals and humans sometime back in the past. If you discover something truly new and you really think that it is new, there is nothing to prevent you from giving it a new name. You could walk outside and pick a twig from a tree and name a new species of tree. Pinus, whatever. Name it after yourself. Name it after Obama. Name it after Trump. Your name is now in, if you publish it, it's in the literature. Now the question is whether your new name is valid. How likely is it that you've actually just walked out the door and found a new species of pine tree? Not very likely. If you look at the history of paleoanthropology, I can't count on my fingers and toes all the names that have been ascribed to Homo erectus since the time it was named in the 1800s. Homo heidelbergensis, Homo unanensis, Homo georgicus. Homo, I can go on with the Homo, 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 Homo. All different species, all named by people, all who are remembered from giving that name. But these names are what we call invalid or junior subjective synonyms because people found a little bit larger Homo erectus or a little bit smaller Homo erectus. Just like you wouldn't walk out in the hallway outside my office here and say, my goodness, you're quite a small human. I think I will name you a new species because we know what human variation is. So you're saying that there, there is a lot of variation within one species. And if anyone questioned this, walk outside and look at all the different forms that humans come in. They're tall and short, and they have all different kinds of body shapes and facial shapes and so forth. And if you were to just look at their bones, you might think that they were different species, and yet they're all from the same species. Yeah, I've often wondered what it would be like to take some gorillas from the Museum of Vertebrate Zoology downstairs or the Human Evolution Research Center. Gorillas, you know, we can go observe them. They mate with one another. They have fertile offspring. These are a species. We call them gorilla gorilla. We even know what the subspecies is, mountain gorilla or lowland gorilla. If I go down to those collections with modern ones that we know are all gorillas, first, there's a huge amount of variation. Secondly... We could break all of those things up. And here's a thought experiment for you. 
what if we took these bones, broke them up, kind of fossilized them or spray painted them or something, and took them to a meeting of physical anthropologists and asked the physical anthropologist, how many species do you see here? And the answer would be that they would oversplit them. And that's what we call species inflation in paleontology. And it's not limited to hominids. We see exactly the same phenomenon in dinosaurs. My colleagues here who study things like Triceratops from the Cretaceous came to the realization that different species that had been named by paleontologists actually were just different growth stages of the same animal. So what is it about the species designation that makes it a rarefied one? Why not have a dozen different species of that morphology or of creatures that exhibit that uh, behavior? It sounds like you want to keep the designation of species. It's, it's a rare classification. Why is that? It's not a rare classification. In fact, there are millions and millions and millions of species of all different kinds of organisms. We are in a part of the tree of life where there aren't all that many species of primates. Take a look at beetles. Some people you know, said that if there were a god, he would must have had a fondness for beetles because he created so many species of them. But what we in zoology think of as a species is this reproductively separate entity. So if you take one such entity, like humans, and go outside and start saying, well, that one's a little bit different from that one over there. Let's just call them different species. You are communicating, to a scientific audience at least, that they can't interbreed. And we know that's false. You would be doing the same thing for the gorillas. If you do it for the fossil record, you are creating an inaccurate impression of what the past was like. And that's why you don't just name species on minor characteristics. Finally, what's the oldest ancestor, our oldest ancestor, that could walk among us today, could walk up on Berkeley campus, you could put them in a pair of jeans and a shirt, walk across campus, and could be mistaken for Homo sapiens? I mean, a Neanderthal walking across campus, you might spot as a Neanderthal. Uh, you know, I don't think you would be able to spot the Neanderthal walking across campus as someone that you would immediately look at and say, wow, get, you know, get that. Behaviorally, maybe, but anatomically not, especially if they were wearing a low-brimmed hat. <laughs> okay. And then what about another example in our lineage? If Artie comes walking up and you'd go, wait a minute, this is, no, no, this one got out of the zoo. Even though she's walking on too late, even though she shares small cane, say this one got out of the zoo. Let's not invite her to dinner. Now, if you looked at the cranium that we found in Ethiopia from sediments that are 160,000 years ago, that's at a time before most Neanderthals existed. And you took that gentleman, that guy, walking across campus, nobody would say is not Homo sapiens. And yet, if you look at what that creature was doing, it was not carrying cell phones around. It was carrying hand axes around. And it was butchering hippopotamus on the shore of a tropical lake at the same time that in northern Europe, massive ice sheets were covering most of, the, most of that continent. That's a very, very different world. And we can learn a whole lot from that world by using the records of context and bones of paleoanthropology to explore it, since we don't have the time machine. Tim White, thank you so much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Thank you.
Tim White is a professor of integrative biology and director of the Human Evolution Research Center at the University of California, Berkeley. Well, what we've learned in the show, among many things, is that paleoanthropology is not for the impatient. Well, no, but that reflects science in general, right? You have a discovery. We've heard of great discoveries here. But sometimes it takes a very long time before you understand what that discovery really means. And that path to understanding is often lined with controversy. What's at stake here is understanding that really interesting time when we went from being ape-like to being human-like. And it was a slow process to become uh, what we are, and it's probably going to be a slow process to understand how we did it. Thanks to the evolved hominids who helped produce this show, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. Also thanks to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, where scientists study the origin and nature of life. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to going all to species. If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science, you'll find those episodes in our archive at bigpicturescience.org. And if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer listening to over-the-air radio, because after all, our hominid ancestors didn't have podcasts, or at least not too many of them, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show. Oh, and have a comment, a criticism, maybe a suggestion. Well, throw in some faint praise and email it all to bigpicturescience at seti.org. And look, I'm related to the guy who invented fire. Everybody's related to that guy. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.